Welcome to the January 19, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the benefits of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in older and medically infirm patients with AML. Learn more about the efficacy and safety of Siltacel in patients with progressive multiple myeloma after exposure to other BCMA-targeting agents. And review the role of anti-CD20 therapy in relapsed, immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. We first examined data in the blood article entitled An Eight-Year Pragmatic Observation Evaluation of the Benefits of Allogeneic HCT in Older and Medically Infirm AML Patients by Mohamed Soror from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington, and colleagues. Allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is a potentially curative therapy for AML. Studies to date have reaffirmed its benefit in patients younger than 60 years with adverse or intermediate-risk cytogenetics. However, most patients with AML are older than 65 years, and overall outcomes in older patients remain poor. Recent population studies have estimated the five-year overall survival to be only 6.8% to 9.3% in the 65 to 74 age group, and 1.1% to 1.5% in the 75 to 84 age group. Although the introduction of reduced-intensity conditioning regimens has increased the use of transplant, only 6% to 8% of AML patients aged 60 to 80 years actually undergo this approach. In addition, the burden of comorbidities is greater in the older age groups, increasing the risk of transplant-related morbidity and mortality. It is not clear to what extent comorbidities and other health burdens among the overall AML population influence the benefits derived from transplant. Thus, a comparison between transplant and non-transplant treatment approaches in vulnerable patients with AML that takes into account the differences in health burdens remains an unmet need. Such a real-world comparison could help inform future studies that more closely resemble the populations treated for AML. In the current study, the authors examined the effects of allogeneic transplantation on mortality and patient-reported outcomes in a cohort of adult AML patients. The multicenter observational longitudinal trial enrolled 705 patients between July 2013 and December 2017 who received AML therapy at 13 U.S. centers. The patients were aged 18 to 80 years and had newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory AML, or high-risk myelodysplastic syndromes. All studied subjects were treated with lower or higher-intensity AML therapy. The study's primary endpoint was overall mortality. Secondary endpoints included quality-of-life assessments, functional status, and frailty. Quality-of-life assessments continued for two years after enrollment, and overall survival data was collected until April 2021. The association between transplant and outcome measures was assessed in six different patient groups. One, the entire cohort. Two, patients 65 or older. Three, patients with a high comorbidity burden. Four, patients with intermediate cytogenetic risk. Five, patients with adverse cytogenetic risk. And six, patients in first remission with or without measurable residual disease, or MRD. 
Among 692 evaluable patients, 46% were treated with transplant with a two-year survival of 58% and a four-year survival of 54%. Transplant was associated with reduced risks of mortality in the entire study population and most of the subgroups. Patients who received transplant had a 29% reduced risk of mortality compared to those who did not receive transplant. Older patients had a 35% reduction in the risk of mortality if treated with transplant. However, this association disappeared after adjusting for covariates associated with increased mortality, including age, comorbidity burden, disease risks, frailty, impaired quality of life, depression, and impaired function. This effect was observed for the entire cohort and any of the previously described subgroups, except for patients with adverse European leukemia net, or ELN, risk, and those who never achieved first complete remission. The authors found that function, social life, performance status, and depressive symptoms were better in patients selected for transplant compared to those not selected for transplant. However, these potential advantages were also lost after treatment with transplant. In terms of treatment expectations, recipients and non-recipients of transplant similarly expected cure to be the main goal of therapy, while physicians expected transplant recipients to have higher cure rates. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that there was no observed transplant benefit in older and medically infirm patients when their models adjusted for AML and patient-specific variables. They highlight the need for randomized trials to identify which patients are the best candidates for transplant. Their priorities would include a trial of immediate versus delayed transplant in ELN intermediate risk group patients with negative MRD status, as well as a trial of older patients with positive MRD to determine how to best sequence transplant versus MRD-directed therapy. The authors also cite the need to study patients who may be deemed unfit because of a relatively higher risk of morbidity and mortality post-transplant, but who also carry a very high risk of relapse without transplant. In an accompanying commentary, Arnold Ganser, from Hanover Medical School in Germany, emphasizes the need to select the best candidates for transplant. Currently, the ELN expert panel proposes transplant for patients with an estimated relapse risk above 35% to 40%. This includes patients with adverse risk AML and non-adverse risk disease with persistent MRD. For patients 60 years or older, transplant in first remission is recommended at diagnosis. For patients with intermediate and adverse risk disease, able and willing to undergo remission-inducing therapy. Ganser notes that the new effective drug combinations, including novel FLT3 inhibitors or combinations of hypomethylating agents with venetoclax, have become standard in the less fit AML patient and haven't been even tested yet in conjunction with transplant. He believes that randomized controlled trials are needed to discern the benefit of transplant compared to other post-remission therapies, including oral azacitidine. Ganser is optimistic that the integration of novel drugs will lead to new risk stratifications in AML, which will help refine treatment recommendations including transplant in selected populations of older AML patients. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Efficacy and Safety of Siltacel in Patients with Progressive Multiple Myeloma After Exposure to Other BCMA-Targeting Agents. 
by Adam Cohen from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and colleagues. The B-cell maturation antigen, or BCMA, is a promising target for novel antimyeloma agents expressed predominantly on the surface of plasma cells. Several anti-BCMA therapies are currently under investigation in multiple myeloma, including bispecific antibodies, antibody drug conjugates, and chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, T-cell therapies. Studies to date have demonstrated that even after treatment with bispecific antibodies targeting BCMA, such as elranatumab and teclistimab, or with antibody drug conjugates, such as belantamab mafodotin, patients may experience disease progression and run out of treatment options. Siltacabdegene autolusal, or siltacel, is a CAR T-cell therapy expressing two BCMA-targeting single-domain antibodies, a CD3-zeta signaling domain, and a 4-1-BB co-stimulatory domain to optimize T-cell activation and proliferation. In the Phase 1-B2 CARTITUDE-1 trial, Siltacel induced early, deep, and durable responses in heavily pretreated patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. The overall response rate was 98% at a median follow-up of two years. Median duration of response and median progression-free survival were not reached. However, CARTITUDE-1 excluded patients previously treated with BCMA-directed therapy. Thus, there is an unmet need to identify the optimal sequencing of BCMA-directed agents in multiple myeloma. In the current study, the authors report on the findings from Cohort C of the Phase II Multicenter CARTITUDE-2 trial, evaluating the safety and efficacy of Siltacel in several different cohorts of multiple myeloma patients. Cohort C evaluated the efficacy of Siltacel in adult patients with heavily pretreated relapsed refractory multiple myeloma who progressed despite treatment with a proteasome inhibitor, an immunomodulatory drug, an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, or a non-cellular BCMA-directed therapy. All patients received a single Siltacel infusion five to seven days after initiation of lymphodepletion. Retreatment with Siltacel was permitted in patients with documented disease progression six or more months after the first infusion. The study's primary endpoint was MRD negativity at 10 to the negative fifth. Secondary endpoints included adverse events, overall response rate, rate of very good partial response and complete response, as well as duration of response and time to response. 20 patients were treated with Siltacel, 13 of which were previously exposed to antibody drug conjugates and 7 to bispecific antibodies. One subject received both therapies. 80%, or 16 of 20 patients, were refractory to prior anti-BCMA therapy. At a median follow-up of 11.3 months, 7 of 20 patients, or 35%, were MRD negative. In the MRD evaluable subset, 70%, or 7 of 10 patients, were MRD negative. The overall response rate was 60%. The median duration of response was 11.5 months, and progression-free survival was 9.1 months. Hematologic adverse events were most common. 12, or 60% of patients, had cytokine release syndrome, and 4 had immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, two of which were grade 3 to 4. A total of 7 patients died three of progressive disease, and four of adverse events, one of which was treatment-related. Based on these findings, 
the authors concluded that Siltacel induced favorable responses in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma and prior exposure to anti-BCMA treatment who have exhausted other treatment options. In an accompanying commentary, Jean-Luc Harousseau from the Institut de Cancerologie de l'Ouest in Saint-Herblain, France, and Mohamed Moti from Hôpital Saint-Antoine at Sorbonne University in Paris note that the study by Cohen and colleagues shows that siltacel therapy is feasible and quite effective with no new or unexpected toxicity in patients previously exposed to BCMA-targeted therapies. Interestingly, most responders to siltacel in this study did not respond to their prior anti-BCMA therapy suggesting that targeting the same tumor antigen with cellular immunotherapy may lead to different results. Harousseau and Moti further note that certain patients may benefit from receiving siltacel earlier in the course of treatment, but that the current study was too small and previous anti-BCMA therapies too heterogeneous to draw any definitive conclusions. Future studies should focus on delineating the mechanism of resistance to BCMA-targeted therapies, as well as the optimal sequencing of different BCMA-targeted therapies. Another potential approach in patients previously exposed to BCMA-targeting agents would be to use a different target. For example, in the Monumental 1 Phase 1 trial, the GPRC5D-targeting bispecific antibody, talquetamab, was evaluated in relapsed refractory myeloma patients of whom 30% had received BCMA-targeted therapy. In another study, Sevastamab, an agent targeting the FC receptor homolog 5, showed encouraging responses in 7 out of 10 patients previously treated with BCMA-targeted therapies, including CAR T-cells. For the final article in today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Long-Term Risk of Relapse in Immune-Mediated Thrombotic Thrombocytopenic Purpura and the Role of Anti-CD20 Therapy by Andrew Doyle from the University College London Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust in London, United Kingdom, and colleagues. Immune-Mediated Thrombotic Thrombocytopenic Purpura, or TTP, is a rare, life-threatening autoimmune condition characterized by an acquired deficiency of the von Willebrand factor cleaving protein, ADAM-TS13. If not treated promptly, TTP is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. The key to successful treatment in the acute phase is the eradication of B lymphocytes producing anti-ADAM-TS13 antibodies. Over the last decade, the chimeric anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody rituximab has become a treatment of choice in TTP. Approximately 15% to 30% of patients with TTP relapse by the two-year mark, with rates increasing with the duration of follow-up. Treatment with rituximab in the acute phase has been shown to prolong the time to the first episode of disease relapse. TTP relapse presents either as a clinical relapse with thrombocytopenia or an ADAM-TS13 relapse with ADAM-TS13 activity levels less than 20% without thrombocytopenia. Therefore. Patients with TTP typically require long-term monitoring of ADAM-TS13 levels. Studies to date have identified several potential risk factors for relapse, including age younger than 25 years, non-O blood group, no therapy with rituximab at initial presentation, and having a previous relapse. In the current study, the authors reviewed the long-term follow-up data for a cohort of TTP patients 
included in a large national multicenter registry to evaluate the features of TTP relapse and responses to anti-CD20 therapy. The authors retrospectively reviewed 795 patients included in the United Kingdom TTP registry between January 1, 2009 and December 31, 2017. 443 patients had a minimum of three years of follow-up and adequate clinical data for analysis. Relapses were categorized as either clinical relapses, defined by a platelet count of less than 150 times 10 to the 9th per liter, or ADAM-TS13 relapses, defined as ADAM-TS13 activity levels less than 20% without thrombocytopenia. Acute presentations and clinical relapses were treated with plasma exchange until platelet counts reached greater than 150 times 10 to the 9th per liter. ADAM-TS13 relapses were treated with preemptive rituximab when activity levels were less than 20%. The primary outcome was the frequency and type of relapse during long-term follow-up. Secondary outcomes included 1. The time from acute presentation to first relapse. 2. New symptom burden in patients with an ADAM-TS13 relapse before treatment. And 3. Hemolytic markers, ADAM-TS13 activity, and CD19-positive B lymphocyte levels before and after anti-CD20 treatment for ADAM-TS13 relapse. More than 50% of patients received anti-CD20 therapies, primarily rituximab. Of the 443 patients, none relapsed within six months of diagnosis and only 4% by the end of one year. Ultimately, 40% relapsed by the five-year follow-up. Black Caribbean ethnicity was associated with an increased risk of relapse, with an odds ratio of 2.66. For patients who were followed for 10 years, there was no difference in relapse rates, regardless of rituximab use at the initial presentation. There was a distinct population of patients, 6%, that relapsed early with subsequent frequent relapses with the median time to relapse in this subgroup being 1.7 years. Patients in this group required frequent retreatment with rituximab. Interestingly, patients who were diagnosed with TTP in the latter part of the study had more than two times lower rate of clinical relapses, 11.1% versus 22.6%, compared to patients diagnosed earlier. This finding was attributed to the introduction of regular monitoring and the administration of preemptive rituximab which took place during the later study period. It should be noted, however, that ADAM-TS13 relapses increased from 8% to 16% during this observation period. Nearly 60% of relapses were ADAM-TS13 relapses. In these cases, subsequent treatment reduced the risk of progression to clinical relapses. 96% of patients with an ADAM-TS13 relapse responded to anti-CD20 therapy achieving an ADAM-TS13 activity greater than 20%. Overall, anti-CD20 therapy proved to be an effective long-term treatment irrespective of relapse pattern. In addition, there was no loss of treatment response after subsequent retreatments. In an accompanying commentary, Ara Metjian from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado, notes that the findings reported by Doyle and collaborators support several important observations. First, that an immunologic relapse can occur in TTP patients years after achieving remission, leading to ADAM-TS13 deficiency. Second, that ADAM-TS13 deficiency leads to recurrent episodes of thrombotic microangiopathy. Third, that regular surveillance and preemptive rituximab 
can raise the ADAM-TS13 activity level and prevent thrombotic microangiopathy. And fourth, that TTP patients of African descent have an increased risk of relapse. These observations support the assertion that TTP should be considered a long-term disease with a significant proportion of patients at risk of relapse, which has been associated with higher rates of depression, cardiovascular disease, neurocognitive decline, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mechian notes that the study also raises several important questions, including which factors cause the emergence and recurrence of the ADAM-TS13 antibody? What is the best treatment for those patients who do not respond to anti-CD20 therapy? And what is the optimal timing of ADAM-TS13 testing? He is optimistic that future studies utilizing data from large national databases will provide answers to these questions and facilitate a continued understanding of TTP and its long-term implications. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.